We are, um, we're going to start, I think, I thought that we would be able to be done with um, our last section on the canon, but as I was looking at uh, some of our notes this, this morning, I realized we have really one more session today on how the New Testament canon became canon. Um, we haven't really dealt with some of the history that goes beyond the actual New Testament era. So we are going to work with that today. Let me open this up by praying, and then we'll get started. Lord, we, we do thank you for the faithfulness of the men and women that have preceded us. We thank you that, that through 2,000 years, you have kept your word, your word, and, it, and it's, it's ours now. We pray, Lord, that, that our generations would also be faithful to pass along your word as authoritative and inerrant and inspired so that our children and their children would know that this is your word as well. Yes, it's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I would say I, did, I only got one of, of, of Dustin Saunders' uh, teachings on this, but I, I, asking him about it today. Um, I think generally what we've discussed as far as the New Testament goes is that there is internal evidence inside your New Testaments that shows this is the Word of God. We, we would use a word like self-authenticating or self-attesting to show that the New Testament that you have is the New Testament or it is the New Covenant. It's inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. And, and really, we, we know that we can trust that something like that would take place because what did Jesus tell us in John chapter 10? My sheep hear my voice. And they know that it's my voice. They know that it's the voice of their shepherd. So when we read God's word, we recognize because of this Holy Spirit in us giving testimony to what we're reading, this is the word of God. And so we have that internal evidence in our own hearts. We have the evidence within the New Testament itself. For instance, as, as Pastor Dustin showed you a few weeks ago, Peter, in his letters, saying Paul's letters are Scripture. Or you have Paul telling the Colossian church, take these letters and send them to the churches around you, which is a recognition that there's something about these letters that's important. And it's not just that it's instruction, but this is from God himself. And so the New Testament testifies to its own um, reliability as canon. But that leaves us with another question that we haven't addressed yet, is when did the church, after the New Testament, recognize the 27 books that we consider canon? When did, when did they recognize that? And, and uh, anybody want to take a guess? One of the earliest? Mark? Mmm. Uh, earliest. Okay. Uh, okay, and when were you, what were you thinking for official? Uh, no, it would have been the Council of Carthage, 390s. So... Um, but the, the first document that we have, or that's popularly known as the first document that we have, is um, written in 367 AD. So that's early-ish, 4th century, but it's not that early. 367 is kind of late when Jesus died in, you know, 33 AD. So that's a, that's a lot of years, but, but we'll get there. Um, the, the one that is popularly known, uh, because it's a very clean document that very clearly says which 27 books would be or should be in the New Testament, uh, written by a guy named Athanasius. You guys remember Athanasius? We've talked about him a little bit before. Uh, Athanasius was born in 296 A.D. in Egypt. Uh, he, you know, we're just getting out of Black History Month one that probably should be talked about in Black History Month. Uh, 
talk about one of the most important figures in all of Christian history. Uh, His nickname was the Black Dwarf. Uh, He was from Egypt, so uh, a shorter, dark-skinned gentleman from Egypt. Uh, When he was only 29 years old, he joined a guy named Alexander, who was the Bishop of Alexandria at the Council of Nicaea. We've heard of the Nicene Creed. Athanasius was there, uh, and he, he was like right-hand man to the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, the, the Council of Nicaea, and, and, and the reason why we have to, I have to give you some backstory because what that, that letter that Athanasius will write, the 39th of his letters to the church in Alexandria, he has to write letters because he's in exile. Well, how did he get in exile? Well, we're going to work on that. So, so we have this Council of Nicaea. It, I see it was called by Emperor Constantine because Constantine did not like that there was this rising division in the Christian church. Uh, nobody likes division. Nobody likes divisiveness. Nobody likes it when people disagree. Uh, and Constantine had sort of suffered for a while seeing this division within the church uh, and finally decided to do something about it when it was basically too late. Um, so so a, a priest from Libya... So a, a priest would be kind of like a, a, a pastor, you know, a presbyter uh, from Libya. Uh, his name was Arius. He had been teaching that the Son, like Father, Son, and Spirit, the Son was a created being, not an eternal being, uh, which is problematic, isn't it? I, I think we could, we could acknowledge that. In fact, one of the ways that he was... Uh, popularizing this teaching, you should know this. You might know what how what means he used to popularize this new theology. Music. So he wrote songs, and the lyrics. One of the lyrics to the songs was, "There was a time when the sun was not." And this popular song, much like songs you might hear here from from Bethel, it went all the way through the top forty hits on Caleb, and all of a sudden, a lot of people believe, because of the music that they're listening to, heresy, that there was a time when the sun was not. And, and this, this gets to such a, 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 a fever pitch within the church that Constancy says, we've got to do something about this. He calls the church council, and uh, the church council meets in Nicaea, and there is Athanasius along with his bishop. 1,800 bishops at that time were 1,800 known bishops in all the different sees of of the church. About 300 bishops showed up to that council, and they hammered out what would be the official church position. Is the Son a created being, or is the Son eternal? And it came down to one iota, right? So you have this, this, if the Son is like God, it would be homoous, homoousius. If he is of the same substance of God, he's homoousius. So only one little letter divided those two theological positions, uh, but the church decided on the Son is of the same substance with the Father, which is Athanasius' position and his bishop's position and the uh, the church and the empire resolved at that point that any possession of any of Arius's writings, if you were caught with one of his books, one of his letters, one of his scrolls, or you're singing one of his songs because it was positive and encouraging, all of a sudden, you are guilty of a capital offense. Yes, Susan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good question. So Arius was influenced mostly by Greek philosophy. So Gnostics, Plato, uh, the idea of the ideal. Um, He's thinking of of these ideals. And if there is an ideal God, then he is pure. He cannot be in Trinity in that sense. It was just too hard to swallow. For, uh, for human 
And that troubled him, and he taught wrong. Um, it was popularized. The church council decides to condemn this teaching. Um, and so basically, Athanasius' team wins. Uh, they won the debate, and we're eternally grateful that they did. Uh, and that bishop, Bishop Alexander, died not long after that. And Athanasius then becomes the bishop of Alexandria. Not long after that, Constantine dies. New emperor in place who is easily swayed. And he is swayed by the Arian position. And he reinstates Arius as a pastor again. So there's a guy who was teaching false doctrine. And the, the, all the churches together said he's not going to be a pastor. But some of the Arians get together. They meet with the emperor. The emperor says, look, can we just come to make an agreement? If he will sign the Nicene Creed, can we reinstate him as a pastor? And they say, yes. And Athanasius says, are you kidding me? <laughs> and he freaks out and, and makes a protest about what is a rightful protest. This is a guy who was teaching heresy that you can't trust. And uh, Arius, I'm sorry, Athanasius is exiled. And he ends up in Luxembourg. So imagine Alexandria, Egypt, to the Rhineland, Luxembourg, like the middle of Europe, which is a different place. He's away from the church that he loves. He's away from the people that he loves. And so every year, he writes a letter to them called the Festal Letter. And usually the point of that letter is to tell them, when do you begin to observe Lent and what date is Easter going to be on? And this is a different subject, but this is an enormous debate within his, Christian history. What day is Easter on? Uh, I, I flew in an airplane with an Orthodox minister sitting next to him. And to him, that is the reason why our church is in error, because we celebrate Easter on the wrong day. Uh, and, and, and why we, are, we have left we are not, we're not a recognized church because we don't celebrate Easter. It's a, an enormous deal if throughout history. In fact, it split the, the Irish church. And you can read old letters way back when in St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day is coming up about the date of Easter. Um, wars are fought over the date of Easter. Point is, Athanasius wrote a letter to his member, church members every year to tell them when to start Lent and when to celebrate Easter, okay? By the time we get to the 39th letter, so he's in exile for many, many years. He was exiled, not exiled, exiled, not exiled, five different times. Uh, he was eventually allowed to go back to Egypt, but still not allowed to be in Alexandria. And so he's still writing these letters. He gets the 39th letter, and I, you know, I made copies of this. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure you get them at the end of the day. Uh, but in the 39th letter, he uh, says that there are 27 books of the New Testament. And these are the 27 books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. John, and, and, and he's, John has five, five letters for us. Um, or he has the Gospel of John, John's epistles, and Revelation. So five writings from John. Peter times two, first and second Peter, James, Jude, and um, all of Paul's letters and Hebrews. And so he's recognizing each and every one of those. Uh, there we go, I'm on the back side here. In fact, Dustin, can you get that? People need to read that. It's on, it's on my desk. There's a stack of them. I already printed them out. Um, it's a letter, it's the, it's the 39th festal letter, festal letter. So it's kind of fun to have something in your hands written by someone in 367, right? Um, anyway, I printed it out on our printer, but it was written by Athanasius that long ago. And, and you'll see in that letter, he names for the churches all the books of the Bibles that the pastors should be using. And, and most likely, the context of Athanasius' letter is that he's correcting things that might be occurring. All right, so when you read it, he's going to say, uh, it's not tedious for me to list all of these books, which is to say, 
we're not splitting hairs by saying which books are canon and which books are not canon. It, it, this is not a theological debate. He's saying we already know which books are in the Bible, and that's kind of the tone of the letter. He's not uh, declaring these are the books of the Bible and he, as if he's the first person to ever declare that. All right, so it would almost be like if I wrote a letter to you and just said, remember the 27 books that we know as a church? Um, and, and you might have to say something like that because someone else in the church, maybe one of the elders or the deacons or somebody, is teaching from a side book, you know, teaching from a book that isn't Scripture and presenting it as if it's Scripture. And he's saying, no, 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 remember which books are Scripture? We've talked about this before. And that's kind of the sense that you get in that letter. In other words, the list isn't one that establishes canon, but one that recognizes canon had already been established. So that's 367, a, rec a clear recognition in a letter that is without a doubt written by Athanasius. No one disputes it. Uh, this is a church leader at the time saying that there is historical evidence. It, it presents for us historical evidence that the church had already recognized it as canon. There you go. Thanks, Dustin. And so you'll see it on section five, which is on the, on the back side if you want to look at it. So that, the, the point of this is that that letter, number 39, is the most obvious of all of the evidence that we have. There's no disputing it. Question then, is it the oldest? So 367, kind of late, is it the oldest? And it's not, in fact. Even though it's often recognized as the most authoritative, it's not the oldest. Uh, most New Testament scholars say there is older evidence. So we go from 367 all the way back to 250 A.D. And so 367, we're in the time of, of Christianity being legal. You can be a Christian. The empire recognizes Christianity as wholesome, beginning in 312. So we're going to go before 312 now to 250 A.D. This is before the time of Constantine, before Christianity was recognized worldwide as being okay. Um, so we're going back into a time of persecution now. And we get to a church leader named Origen. Anybody ever heard of Origen? Kind of a funny name. Uh, his last name is Adamantius, which, any Marvel fans? Um, yeah, yeah, or Adamant. So, so Adamantium means man of steel in, in Latin. And uh, Wolverine in the X-Men, adamantium was the metal that coated his skeleton and gave him those spike, those claw things. All right. Anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. Obviously, you didn't. Uh, <laughs> so, so Origen Adamantius uh, was born in 185, also near Alexandria. And, and just so you know, Alexandria, Egypt was one of the three centers of Christianity in the earth, in the ancient world. I mean, hands down, between Antioch, Alexandria, and when later Constantinople, this is, this is world, this is like Nashville. Uh, so we have, yeah, also another joke, Southern Baptist joke, okay. <laughs> so born in 185 near Alexandria, Egypt, when he was 17, his father was martyred for his faith. And so you can imagine a 17-year-old young man seeing Dad martyred for his faith. And what do you think this young man wants to do? Also a Christian. Well, if dad was killed for his faith, then the best way to follow Christ is to follow in my father's footsteps. So Origen tells mom, I want to do what dad did. And he begins to get his things together to go out and kind of defend the family. And his mom hides his clothes from him. Um, so he's, he can't. He can't leave the house. Mama doesn't want him to... Go be a martyr. And um, so he isn't. She prevented him from leaving. So to support his family, uh, a year passes. He's 18 years old now, and he opens up a Christian primary school. Right? So remember, there's not public schools. This is Alexandria, Egypt, second century. There's no public schools. Uh, and he opens a Christian primary school, which is where he's teaching, teaching catechism to young kids. Uh, and he's uh, continuing to study. He's continuing to write a... A wealthy person in his church recognizes his gifting, 
and basically sponsors him to be a full-time writer. And, uh, and so he is able to devote a lot of time to research, to writing, and um, that's where we start to see some of his writings come out. Um, his approach to the Bible is different than what we, how, we'd, how we would approach Scripture. All right, He used a, a, a method of interpretation that we would call allegorical. You heard that word before, allegory? So um, it, it, it was not new to him. In, in fact, this method of approaching Scripture was kind of popular in his area. So he's only doing what he's taught to do. So you open up the Old Testament, and rather than seeing how it points to Christ the way that we see how it points to Christ, so um, you know, we would see types and antitypes. So we would see, for instance, the story of Joseph. We would see Joseph as one who is like Christ in many ways, and we would see God's faithfulness to Joseph and God's faithfulness to Israel and God's faithfulness to his promises, and then we get Jesus. All right, and Jesus is like Joseph in that he was persecuted by his own brothers in many ways. All right, he would take it a step further and see the the the, the threads connecting Joseph to Jesus as more spiritual. I don't know how else to say it. We call it he would call it a spiritual understanding. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, of in just a minute of, of where we see this, but. This is how he reads Scripture. One of the reasons why he re reads Scripture this way, his argument is that, well, in Genesis 1, the Bible teaches us that there was light before there was the sun, moon, and stars. And that's impossible. Therefore, we have to read it allegorically. And, that, and so that's how he approaches Scripture. That's how he was taught to approach Scripture. It's not uncommon. Uh, uh, Augustine also approaches Scripture to, in, in many ways. Same way. So you're going from 185, so right, right around 200, all the way to the middle 300s, same approach to Scripture. So this is popular in those days. So I'm getting to the point here. Uh, he preached through books of the Bible, much like we do, though. So he would do, for instance, let's say we're studying Joshua. He starts with Joshua chapter 1 and preaches Joshua chapter 1, and he goes all the way through. By the time he got to the seventh sermon from the book of Joshua, as he's preaching about Israel's attack on Jericho. Let me read for you a little bit from his sermon, all right? It's kind of interesting. So he, he's, he's looking at that and saying, so too, you see, he's reading Israel's attack on Jericho allegorically, and listen to how he does it. So too, our Lord Jesus Christ sent his apostles as priests, carrying well-wrought trumpets. First, Matthew, so remember Jericho, you've got seven priests, Seven trumpets marching around the wall seven times. All right, listen now. He thinks of this. First priest is Matthew, sounding the priestly trumpet in his gospel. And then Mark also, and Luke and John each gave forth a strain on their priestly trumpets. Peter, moreover, sounds with the two trumpets of his epistles, James also and Jude. Still the number is incomplete, and John gives forth the trumpet sound through his epistles and apocalypse, which is the word for revelation. And Luke, while describing the deeds of the apostles. So if you're counting, now we have seven. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Jude. And, and he would say that's the, the seven priests of Jericho. That's how we are to understand it nowadays. Last of all, moreover, that one comes around who said, I think that God has set us forth the apostles last of all, who would, which would be the last apostle, Paul, uh, the, the latecomer, as it were. And thundering on the 14 trumpets of his epistles, he threw down even at the very foundations the wall of Jericho, that is to say, all the instruments of idolatry and the dogmas of the philosophers. And so he, he's reading the fall of Jericho, and seeing the seven priests as the first seven Bible or New Testament writers, Paul, the one that comes later, and all together those trumpets bring down the worldliness of the world, all right, through their writing of the letters. 
So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke's two letters. He acknowledges Luke or the Gospel of Luke and Acts. John, five, Peter times two, James, Jude, and there's your seven priests, and then the latecomer, Paul, with his 14. Uh, we would typically say Paul only wrote how many? 13. Most early theologians, teachers, pastors said Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, there's, that's, we'll get to that when we get to the transmission section. Who wrote Hebrews? Dustin will teach that one. <laughs> yeah. So he also has a sermon. So that's his sermon, his seventh sermon from Joshua. He also has a sermon from Genesis chapter 26 in which he makes a similar move. So this is, again, what I'm trying to show you is that an early church father, 250s, recognized the authoritative scriptures. That's the point that we're trying to get at here. Uh, in, in his in sermon on Genesis 26, uh, you, you can read Genesis 26, and you see Isaac going back to where his father had been, and he's redigging his father's wells and renaming them, after giving them the names that his father, Abraham, gave those wells. And then Moses tells us that Isaac uh, dug new wells, or he had his servants dig new wells. And so Origen reads that and says, oh, I know who those servants are. His servants, the servants of Isaac, the way that we're supposed to understand that, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, and Paul. And those new wells are the New Testament. That's not how we do Bible study. But, but the, the point of this is that he saw what books were Scripture in 250 A.D. and knew that those Bible writers were writing inspired Scripture. And he didn't name anybody else as those people inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. So that's 250 AD. Uh, a long way before Athanasius, and we've got a pretty well-recognized New Testament canon, if we're, if we're following Origen's arguments, even though he preaches weird sermons. Uh, and, and again, Origen, in doing that, he's not declaring these should be the books. He's recognizing, same thing, we all know these guys are writing scripture, have written scripture for us. He's simply recognizing what the church already recognized. Do you have any questions about that? Because I know it's a little bit confusing. No questions? All right. So we're in 250 AD, and that's, that's as early as we get a list of the complete New Testament canon. But if we were going to try to go before 250 AD, which I think is, is wise to do, if, if you were researching this on your own, what sort of evidence would you be looking for if you were trying to prove that churches and theologians were treating these 27 books that we have as Scripture? What would you be looking for? Quoting Scripture, yeah? Okay, yeah, so you, when we was reading their sermons and things like that, are they quoting Scripture? Very good. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Good. Josh? Okay. Yeah. What, where do you see lots of copies of? Very good. All right. Th those are great answers, and that's exactly what we look for. So we're going to give you a couple guys from that time. Um, first one, in no particular order, Clement of Rome. So Clement of Rome, born in 30 A.D., died 100 A.D. So this is like contemporary with the apostles, with early Christianity. Um, so we're going first century first. Uh, he's possibly the Clement mentioned in Philippians chapter 4. Anybody want to open up Philippians 4 for us? Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. And we don't know if this is the same Clement. It's probably a popular name. That's like saying... The one guy whose name is John. Uh, it, it, but it's certainly possible. Um, you, you, getting your, getting, being a bishop in Rome and being named in a letter from Paul kind of raised the likelihood that this might be the same guy, especially if they're around the same time. Philippians 4, 2 through 3. Anybody got it? 
Here you go, Diane. There you go. Amen. So, so you have Paul saying to the Philippian church, remember Clement. Yeah. Um, it, we don't know for sure it's the same guy, uh, but we do know that he was one of the first bishops of the Church of Rome, uh, either the second, third, or fourth. We don't really know which one. But we do know that he served in that role, served the church from 92 A.D. to 99 A.D. All right, so we're first century, 92 to 90, 99. He wrote two different uh, books or letters, First Clement and Second Clement. Uh, the First Clement is a letter written to the Corinthian church. All right, so we know the Corinthian church, and we know that he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church because of some dispute that they were having. Let me read for you his letter to them. He says to the Corinthians, Take up the epistle, the letter, of the blessed Apostle Paul. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos. Which letter to the Corinthians does that sound like? They have this early dispute. First Corinthians. Yeah, so First Corinthians, they have this. Some of you follow Paul. Some of you follow Cephas, some of you all follow Apollos, some of you follow Jesus. You know that early dispute, 1 Corinthians chapter 1? And, and so then he says, But that inclination for one above another entailed less guilt upon you, inasmuch as your partialities were then shown towards apostles already of high reputation, and towards a man whom they had approved. But now reflect who those are that have perverted you and lessened the renown of your far-famed brotherly love. 1 Corinthians 13, brotherly love. It is disgraceful, beloved, yea, highly disgraceful, and unworthy of your Christian profession that such a thing should be heard of as that the most steadfast and ancient church of the Corinthians should, on account of one or two persons, engage in a sedition against its pastors. And this rumor has reached not only us, but those also who are unconnected with us, so that through your infatuation, the name of the Lord is blasphemed, while danger is also brought upon yourself. So this is a rebuke. The Corinthian church is used to rebuke, but, but he's also he's telling them at the beginning, the letter you got from the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means that in 95 AD, when this was written, Clement is recognizing Paul's writing as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the church in Rome recognizing that, all right? And so in th throughout the rest of this letter, he quotes the book of Acts, he quotes Titus, he quotes First and Second Peter, and Hebrews, and Romans, Matthew, Luke, and James. So that's eight books. And then lots of Old Testament books, that, but we've already established Old Testament. Uh, but this, it's interesting that the way that he talks about the New Testament books in this letter to the Corinthians, he gives the same authority as the Old Testament books, which is significant. So we're 95 AD now. That's early. Now, we don't, again, it's not a list of all the books of the New Testament, but it is recognizing especially that the Gospels in Paul's letters are authoritative, along with an inclusion of Hebrews, which is important because we wonder, we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews, and yet we know that as early as 95 AD, it was being used as scripture. So that's helpful to us. Uh, and then we have James's uh, book or letter, whatever it is, uh, being used or seen as scripture. So that's Clement of Rome, Bishop of Rome, second, third, or fourth, we're not sure, 95 AD, really great, helpful letter for us. Um, Surprisingly, some early Christians in the second century thought that Clement's letter should be Scripture. Uh, but Clement himself, when you read the letter, you get this sense, this isn't Scripture. 
You, you, you see it more as a letter of encouragement to a church who's struggling, and he's quoting Scripture as the authority, uh, New Testament Scripture even. Uh, and it's also significant that most churches did not recognize this letter as Scripture. So and we'll talk about that in a minute. Susie? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure the Corinthians would have kept it, and probably the people that wrote it for him, you know, as he's, as he's dictating it. Um, like, why would we have that? It's a really good question. Good question. I don't know. I'll look into that. Yeah, it does. But, but one thing that I noticed as I was reading some of these early letters is... They are so bathed in Scripture, and they're quoting it without quoting it. Uh, they're using phrases that you would only see in the book of John, for instance. Uh, Dustin and I were looking at one today uh, where Jesus is described as the bread of life. Only John says that, and you don't see that in any other books, and yet they're, they're talking about the bread from heaven as if that's just the way you talk about Jesus. Uh, but they would have only gotten that from Scripture. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, another early church father named Ignatius. You ever heard of St. Ignatius? So you, when we have colleges, St. Ignatius. Uh, he, he's from Antioch, which is another one of those prime church centers in the early church. So Alexandria, Rome, Antioch, Smyrna. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch is another one of these guys who leaves us with writings that show us how he understood the New Testament. Uh, so he was born 35 A.D., so right around the time of Christ's death, and he died 107 A.D. So he died very early in the second century. Uh, he was one of the first martyrs of the church. He was fed to lions because he refused to acknowledge the Roman gods. Uh, but he was uh, serving the church faithfully. Uh, he was either the second or third bishop of Antioch. And remember how important Antioch is. Uh, Antioch sent the first missionaries. And if he is a bishop in Antioch in the 90s A.D., uh, who is he following? I mean, he's, he's following guys who were there. I mean, he was probably a child in the church when hands were laid on Paul to send him out. I mean, it's just kind of fascinating to think that we have letters from people who were part of these churches. Uh, so in his letters, uh, we see Ignatius quote uh, most of Paul's letters, we see Matthew quoted, uh, and we see Hebrews and 1 John quoted, and also the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John isn't quoted a whole lot. Matthew, out of all the early Gospels, Matthew was the most widespread Gospel. It, it's evident when we look at the early letters of the church that Matthew's Gospel was in, in wide usage in the early church. Uh, so after Ignatius, we have a guy named Polycarp. He's my favorite. Uh, he was born 69 A.D. and died 156. So we're still transitioning first to second century here. Uh, Polycarp, we know for sure that he was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he grew up in John's church. So he grew up listening to John's preaching, which is, again, it's really cool to think about that there are people, like we, we read these guys in the New Testament and we think, Oh, they're just kind of out there, but they're real ministers. They're real apostles, and there were people who were discipled by them, and Polycarp's one of those guys. Um, he's a disciple of John. He later becomes the bishop of Smyrna. In fact, when Ignatius, the guy I told, just told you about, when he was being taken to Rome for his martyrdom, the, the ten soldiers that are taking Ignatius down there they stop in Smyrna for a while, and Polycarp's church serves Ignatius. And Ignatius gives Polycarp letters to send to other churches. All right? And so we have a letter from Polycarp, which is kind of a cover letter to churches who are also receiving letters from Ignatius. And, and so are you tracking with that, how that works? Okay. Um, Polycarp will later also become a martyr. Just read for you his martyrdom story. I'm going to give you the play-by-play. -play. Um, 
So it's not clear exactly why he was martyred suddenly, because uh, he made it all the way to age 86. And everybody knew he was a Christian. Everybody knew what he was about. He wasn't a shy person about what he was doing. But he, he wasn't martyred until he was 86. Uh, when he was arrested, uh, he had heard that Roman officials were going to arrest him. Uh, and he decided this time, I'm going to wait for them at home. And his friends said, you need to leave. You need to leave. They're going to arrest you. And he finally agrees to go to a place outside of town. The Romans find out about it, and um, they go to arrest him there. They came to, came to his door. The, his friends again say, you need to leave, you need to leave. And Polycarp says, God's will be done. And uh, he lets the soldiers arrest him. He's escorted to the local proconsul, Statius Quadratus. I don't really know how to say that name who interrogated him in front of a whole crowd of curious onlookers. And Polycarp was, I mean, he's 86. He's got nothing to lose. Uh, he's unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on this, he's kind of a, the, the, the writer that I was reading describes his, his dialogue as witty. I would describe it as smart alecky. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's, uh, the, 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 Quadratus loses his temper with him as, as because of Polycarp's back-talking. Uh, and he finally threatens him. And he says, you're going to be thrown to the wild beasts, and you're going to be burned at the stake, and so on. And Polycarp just says, while your fires last but a little while, the fires of judgment cannot be quenched, which is his, his retort. Like, yeah, I'm going to burn. You're going to burn a lot longer, his statement to him. And he says, well, why do you delay? Come at me. And so the soldiers grab him, and they nail him to a stake. And Polycarp says, look, you don't need to nail me. I'm going to sit through this fire. For, see, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security from your nails. And so he prayed aloud, and the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. And the person who wrote about his martyrdom said, it was not as burning flesh, talking about the smell, but as bread baking, or as gold and silver refined in a furnace, which is a great testimony. Um, anyway, that's why I like Polycarp. So while he was living, though, uh, he wrote a letter to the church at Philippi around A.D. 110. And uh, like I told you, this is a cover letter for Ignatius' correspondence to the Philippian church. And in that letter, Polycarp directs, directly quotes a lot of scripture including Paul's letter to the Philippians. So again, just like that letter the Corinthians got, uh, the Philippians are getting a letter where the person writing it to them is quoting Paul's letter to them as well, which is pretty neat. Uh, he also quotes Acts and 1 Peter, Ephesians, Psalms, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, and 1 Timothy. So he's quoting lots of Scripture, treating it as Scripture, 110 A.D. So you kind of get in the picture here. There's three early church fathers. There's many more. I just chose three of my favorites uh, from 95 A.D. to 110 A.D. And the church, we can see then, is treating New Testament Scripture as Scripture. They're, they're, not, they're not treating it as some other type of you know, special letter. This is, they're treating it as if, as if it is authoritative in their lives. Uh, one scholar argues, and I, I forgot his name, he says this, that if we didn't have access to the early manuscripts of the New Testament, so we'll talk about when we get to transmission, we have all sorts of manuscripts. And this scholar says, look, if we didn't have any of those manuscripts, just based on the writings of the early church fathers, we could reconstruct the New Testament, which is pretty cool to think about. That's almost like if we didn't have any Bibles and you went to the Christian bookstore, you could, just based on the good books, you, you, could, you could find enough quotes of Scripture to be able to put the Bible back together. You're kind of picking up on, on what he's down there. I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, the, the question that, that we, the last question we'll address, and we'll do this pretty quickly, is did they ever include other books? So we've, I think we've established pretty clearly these 27 books are the books. 
but we know there's a few other books around in, in, during that time. And they kind of come in three different categories. We have books that people said were written by apostles, which might or might not have been, probably not have been. So like Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, you've heard of Gospel of Thomas, that's one of the weird ones. Um, we have books that were written by those who were close to apostles. So these are like, there's one called the Shepherd of Hermas. We have Clement, the one that we just talked about, close to apostles. I mean, these, these, Clement would have known Matthew and Luke. We know that he was probably friends with these guys. So if they're close to an apostle, sometimes they get extra authority as a book. Um, and then we have another one called the Letter of Barnabas. Might or might not have been written by Barnabas, probably not. And then we have books about the apostles. So those are books, pseudonym books, books by those close to the apostles, and books that are about the apostles. This would be like the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Paul, uh, books that just kind of tell you about the backstory. What else was happening? What else did Paul do? What else did Peter do? Um, the big deal as we look at the old, at the evidence from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, none of these are treated as Scripture. All of them are quoted. So, so especially, the, especially the ones that are written by those close to the apostles, those are quoted, and we'll see them quoted. You'll see them quoted by Clement. You see them quoted by, Ath, uh, not Athanasius, but you see them quoted by, by Polycarp and Ignatius. So they're, they're seeing these books, and they're quoting them. We know that they're kind of getting some circulation around, but none of them are quoted as much. Josh mentioned just the amount of times that, that you see them quoted, or somebody did. Um, right. Yeah. So, so, so it would be like maybe I would quote a, a book by one of my favorite writers in a sermon. Like, I'll do that probably every sermon. I'm going to quote one of, my, one of my favorite writers or a theologian or somebody that said something that's helpful. But how much am I going to quote Scripture? A whole lot more. And so that's kind of what you see happening in that time. You'll see these quotes from helpful books, but, I mean, we're 200 times more quotes of New Testament books. So just from that sheer volume, you kind of get the idea they thought about these things differently. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, like I told you, th those, those books that are most often in question, like the Shepherd of Hermes or Clement's books, those books do not claim to be Scripture. They don't have the sense of Scripture. They're not consistent as equally with the rest of Scripture. You just don't treat them as Scripture. Um, yeah, go ahead. Amen. Yeah, I agree. Exactly what's happening there. The, the Lord is, is leading the church. Uh, uh, another issue that you have is those pseudonymous Pseudonymous, something, pseudonymical books. Yeah, there we go. The books that were falsely attested uh, to have been written by apostles, they were discredited during that time. So people knew the Gospel of Peter was not written by Peter. So, I mean, imagine you've got a, you've got a, go a copy of the Gospel of Peter, and you go to a church and you bring it with you, and the people say, I never heard of the Gospel of Peter. Because, you know, most of these Gospels are being spread around. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are being circulated. And you bring the Gospel of Peter, and you say, how come you guys aren't using this book? And they say, well, we've never heard of it. Plus, I knew Peter. And he didn't write that. I mean, and, that, and that's what you really have going on. I mean, if that's because it's, you're so early in church history, people would have known the Apostles. And they would have known what they wrote and what they didn't write. And so this pseudonymous, pseudonymous, <laughs> yeah, those books, the falsely attested books, um, they just didn't, they were just easily discredited. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why we have to understand that they could have still gained circulation is because of just the nature of the church in that time. Remember, it's illegal to be a Christian. So you're talking 200 AD, uh, you can't be a Christian legally. And say you've got a copy of this book, there's no internet, there's no phones, 
And, and maybe your little church, which is 100 miles from the nearest church, has a copy of this because some guy brought it from another church way back in the day, and so your church not really knowing better is using it. There's, there's really no means of correcting except for that internal evidence because you didn't have all the way until after Constantine. You didn't have church councils. So you didn't have all the bishops gathering together making decisions like this because they couldn't. They would get killed. So you can see why some of these books would have crept around and, and kind of kept uh, popping up for a little while before you get those determinate church councils. The first one, really 397 in Carthage when the church finally writes down what they have recognized through the centuries as being canon. Uh, but these, you know, the conspiracy theories, like the Gospel of Thomas was shut down by Constantine because they didn't want to know that, they didn't want people to know that Jesus really was whatever Gnostic or created or whatever Gospel of Thomas. There's no, there's no conspiracy theory here. This is just the reality of what it means to be a Christian in the first and second and third centuries. Uh, it's difficult. And the technology is behind. And so really, the idea that we would have a consistent canon in use as early as the first or the second century is pretty good. Uh, and, and that we would have a list in the third century, and then by the time you get to the end of the fourth century, the church is, has made the declaration. That kind of makes sense, uh, just given where, where we are. So the idea that, that the canon was recognized very late is simply false. The canon was recognized by the church as soon as the end of Revelation. <laughs> as soon as the last book of the canon was written, the canon was completed. And that's, it just took the church a little while to pick up on it. And, and, and once we did, we've been well served. All right. Any questions? Well, let's go into a time of prayer. Dustin, you want to Yeah, go ahead. Arius, yes. Absolutely, yeah. And, and in fact, when you talk to them, they will defend Arius as if he were kind of gypped. You know, like, oh, Arius got the short end of the stick. And really, again, there's that conspiracy that uh, the, the church really did him a disservice by not listening to him the way they should have. So they, they, they will discredit Ni the Council of Nicaea very quickly. They don't like it if you call them Arians, though. Trust me. <laughs> but it's true. Let's pray. Uh, I wanted to start our time of prayer this morning... This morning, typical. Oh, this evening, yes. Uh, just I would like someone. Um, you know, there are so often we we rush into prayer with all the things that we need and all the things that we're thinking of and that's putting in our hearts, which which is okay. But uh, there are so many times and places in Scripture when we're commanded just to give thanks, and oftentimes we forget that. So Ephesians five nineteen through twenty is one of these places. It says this, that to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, uh, not with the songs of Arius, by the way, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. So always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So would someone just pray a prayer of thanksgiving for all that we have here and all that God has given us? Pretty please? Yeah.
Amen. Uh, well, as she said, and as we just heard in our lesson, um, one of the the uh, just truths about Christianity throughout history and even today is that we are often those who are pu- persecuted um, quite heavily. This was true of the church from the time of Jesus for the, about the first 300, 350 years. Um, but there are still places today that the church is heavily persecuted um, by those who hate it. And we can tend to think, I think sometimes just in our modern time, that that's kind of the exception. But actually, we're really the exception uh, in all the freedoms that we have historically. Um, it's just a couple of examples from the scriptures. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, and, and Jesus said many things like this, um, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, um, as if something strange was happening, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So the, the idea of being persecuted uh, is, is normal in the Christian life. And we were talking today about just some of the places is going on right now. And one of the, the worst places right now uh, is Nigeria. And there's been, there's been multiple news stories coming up recently. And so on your prayer sheets, there's, there's uh, just like a very brief little set of information about kind of what's going on in Nigeria. There's a lot of Christians there. Um, if you're just counting at like evangelical Christians, there's about 44 million. Um, but... The, there's also a lot of Muslims, and they, they also, so it's kind of a religious conflict. There's also just all these, like, tribal politics and things like that. But the bottom line is the church is being uh, just torn apart by persecution right now. Um, I mean, you, if, you, if you kind of go on the news sources that talk about these things, uh, you know, it's not going to be on the front page of your, your local newspaper. But uh, there's just church attacks. There's kidnappings. There's executions. They're, they'll kidnap people and just hold them for ransom. Um, just, you know, they'll kick down the doors of a church and just line everybody up and start shooting them. And so uh, I want to spend some time tonight to be praying. And then on your prayer sheet, there's, because sometimes we can think, what's the best way to pray for the, these people? You know, do we pray that God would uh, stop that? Do we pray, how do we pray for them? So, there's five ways to pray for the persecuted church on your prayer list that I got from Open Doors uh, USA, which is a, or a nonprofit that deals with the persecuted church. And there's scriptures by each one. Because, again, as, as we pray, what we're trying to always do is to pray uh, the things of scripture and to pray what scripture has us to pray. So um, just, just as, a, as a general prayer tonight, would someone lift up a, a, a prayer for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who are facing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Amen. Amen. Yeah, so take that take that with you this week and be just be praying for them. Be be thinking of them. Um they they need our prayers very much right now. Um so maybe just take this week to to focus on that in your time of prayer is one of the things you're praying for. Yeah. Not at all. So uh, the first one says, pray that whatever their circumstances, God will give persecuted Christians the right words. And so, and you can see the scripture there, but essentially it's saying is, is as they're confronted, as people are storming into their houses and their churches, uh, questioning them, you know, are you a believer? Will you turn away from the faith? That, that God would give them the right words to speak in those circumstances with clarity and with boldness. Um, you know, for some of them who are kidnapped, I just read of account of a guy who was kidnapped. Sometimes it's just knowing the right words to get themselves out of the situation. Um, so, so that God would guide them in that way. Uh, also, the second one is pray that the persecuted Christians will understand and find peace and contentment in the sufficiency of God's grace, even in their weakness. So even when the persecution doesn't lift, that they, they wouldn't feel um, judged by God, but they would actually feel content and, and sufficient in God's grace for them, even in their weakness. And that, that passage there, you can look these up uh, when you get home, is that my grace is sufficient for you, uh, for my strength is made, is made perfect in weakness. That's uh, a wonderful passage of that. The third one is, pray that Christians facing hardship will draw from a source of power larger than themselves. And, and this idea comes from 2 Corinthians, where Paul says that, that they were so afflicted, they felt that they had received the sentence of death and that all of that was happening to them so that they would depend upon God and not on themselves. And so that's, that's our prayer for them, that in this persecution, would they learn to depend more and more on God and not on themselves. And fourthly, pray that God would be present with them in their hardships, protecting them according to his will. Again, in Acts 12, there are times where God moves and frees people from prison. He freed uh, the Apostle Peter from prison um, miraculously. And so uh, that's okay to pray too, absolutely, according to his will. And then pray that their witness would inspire those who seek to harm them. So again, there are countless stories throughout church history of executions like a polycarp or something like that where he gets martyred, but then two or three of the guards or people standing there get saved because of his faithfulness and testimony. So that's, that's our same prayer here. Uh, you know, Tertullian in the second century famously said that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So as more and more people are killed and people witness them dying in faith, uh, they come to saving faith in Christ. So that's our prayer that their, their death in that sense uh, for those who are killed would, would, um, would actually be a testimony to those who are killing them. Uh, right now, so those are those are just some some ideas of ways to pray. Um, so take that with you, fold it up, put it in your Bible, uh, whatever you need to do. Um, I'd like to close with this this time with prayer uh, for the persecuted church. I found this prayer on the Gospel Coalition. And I just thought it's such a beautiful prayer for the persecuted church. So would you pray this this with me? Sovereign God, we, we worship you and we acknowledge that you know all of those who suffer in your name. We remember those who are imprisoned for their faith and ask that they would join with the Apostle Paul to see that even though they remain captive, their chains have furthered the gospel, not frustrated it. May they inspire and embolden their fellow believers to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. God of all comfort, for those who are tortured both in body and mind, give them the grace to endure and to see their suffering as part of the following in Christ's footsteps. 
Merciful God, for those asked to pay the ultimate price who are martyred because of their love for you, may they truly know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Father God, for those who are widowed and orphaned, may they know the comfort that comes from your promised presence even when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. May they be strengthened by your spirit, enabling them to rejoice with the psalmist as they proclaim that the Lord will not abandon them in death. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us ever mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who need us to stand with them as they suffer in your name. Teach us what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We pray that we would not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. O Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and next Wednesday night, just a quick announcement, uh, the Gideons will be coming to share with us uh, their testimony of the Word of God and the Bible. So looking forward to that. Turn your clocks back. Forward, forward, forward. <laughs>